1: Hello everyone, welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Tom Bodenette. I am a Senior Lecturer in International Studies and Japanese Studies at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. And I am extraordinarily thrilled and privileged to have with me Associate Professor Howard Chang from the University of California. Uh, And we're going to be discussing today his award-winning new book, *Transtopia* in the Sinophone Pacific. I have been extraordinarily excited to have this conversation. It's taken us a bit of a, a while to to get together, but Howard, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So. You have been quite a prolific um, scholar within the field of queer Asian studies and in queer sinophone studies in particular, Um, someone that... Myself, as, as a bit of a junior scholar within the field of queer Asian studies, looks up to. And I, I just wanted, wanted you to kind of briefly tell us a little bit more about your broader work and your research interests before we really dig into the discussion of, of this fantastic new book, Transtopia in the Sinophone Pacific from Col- uh, Columbia University Press. So, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this book in particular?
0: Yeah, so uh, I was really trained as a historian of science, um, and as such, I am particularly interested in the history of knowledge, uh, in particular history of systems of thought, and that ranges from uh, the social life of sexual concepts to the kind of conceptual and intellectual foundations of the human sciences. Um, For the past 15 years, I've been working on the history of gender and sexuality in modern East Asia. Um, this was evident, for example, in my first monograph, um, After Unix, which is about the history of sex change in China from the demise of eunuchs and castration in the late Qing era to the emergence of transsexuality in Cold War Taiwan. Um, I think one easy answer <laughs> to your last question there is that this book on transtopia is kind of like a sequel to After Unix. Um, over the years, I've also edited a number of collections, including Transgender China, um, Queer Xenophon Cultures, Perverse Taiwan, and the Global Encyclopedia of LGBTQ History. I think in both my individual research and collaborative work, I have struggled with the way transness and queerness are discussed in a global and non-Western framework. So I think thinking through that problem um, was a major motivation for me to write this book. Another Mm. important rationale for writing this book has to do with the ways in which um, new paradigms of era studies have emerged recently to address the changing rapidly evolving geopolitical context over time. And this includes um, the critique of Chinese empire Uh, settler colonial studies, comparative racialization, and global indigenous studies. I think East Asian studies in general um, is incapable of, or has been incapable of addressing some of these growing concerns. In an earlier moment, I think critiques of the Japanese empire have led to the blossoming of many interesting works on race, empire, and power. But there hasn't really been a parallel movement in the face of the rise of China. And we'll see how it fares with the rise of Korea as well. And finally, and I think maybe this is something that we can come back to later in the interview if you're also interested. um, I think while there is a booming interest in queer Asian studies, as you know, um, I find the field to be rather uh, agnostic to historical thinking. And that is not to say that there has been you know, no important study in queer Asian history, um, the work of Gregory Fluchfelder or Sansalan comes to mind as canonical contributions to these fields. Um, but I think much of the scholarship in queer Asian studies, and perhaps queer theory in general, uh, remain trapped in the short-lived histories of queer experience. And I think this is understandable, right? Given that work in the social sciences, including anthropology and sociology, tend to center on present day fieldwork. So I do see the value um, in different disciplinary approaches. Um, I think, however, in the bigger picture, um, interest in historical scholarship remains at the margins of queer Asian studies. And this is one limitation that both um, after Unix, and this book, Transtopia in the Sinophon Pacific, seek to overcome.
1: Thank you very much for that reflection, Howard. And, and your comments regarding history particularly resonate with me as I am trained as an anthropologist and work on Japan and Southeast Asia. But recently, I myself, in thinking through some of my work on the kind of queer valencies of of Japanese popular culture, has led me to turn towards the hist- historical, and this this new book of yours, Transtopia, I think, is such a powerful and useful. In intervention into the emerging field of queer Asian studies because it is a masterful example of just what historical analysis and historical sensibilities can bring to these broader discussions that you have raised. As well, I take your point very clearly around the issues with um, area studies, particularly East Asian studies. This is something, once again, as a Japanese study scholar, I have also found myself butting up against Now, I want to return to something that you mentioned very briefly before, this idea of writing about transness or queerness from non-Western perspectives, because you open up transtopia with what I think is a particularly evocative vignette, sharing this fantastic and really fascinating anecdote about your experiences at a conference held in San Francisco in 2019 called the Queering History Conference, which you use as a a kind of opening to introduce the broader theoretical concerns of transtopia. Before we launch into the meat of today's discussion and really talk about what your book is doing, I wonder if you could share with the listeners of the New Book Network, just a little bit about this experience of yours at the Queering History Conference and how it led you to begin thinking about some of these questions that you've so beautifully introduced us to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was a somewhat
0: surreal experience <laughs> that I had to go through in attending the uh, 2019 Queer History Conference, or QHC for short, in San Francisco. And um, for listeners who are not aware of what the conference is, the QHC is a biannual event organized by the Committee on LGBT History, which is an affiliate of the American Historical association, kind of like the society that Tommy and I worked on for society for creation studies is also an affiliate of um, association for Asian studies. Now interestingly, the 2019 QHC was the first conference of its kind organized by the committee in the history of its existence. So the committee has been uh, around for several decades and 2019 was the first time they put together the conference. Um, On top of that, the significance was obviously bolstered um, by the way the timing coincided with the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots, right? Which many historians continue to reference as the landmark event that kind of inaugurated the modern gay and lesbian movement. So there I was, um, as the convener and chair of the only panel on Asia, I was struck by the zero mentioning of the concurrent event that was happening unfolding in East Asia, uh, namely the anti-extradition bill protest in Hong Kong. Um, So on June 16th, which was also the first day of the conference, as many as 2 million residents in Hong Kong, and that means one in four of residents in Hong Kong, decided to take it to the street and protest a bill uh, coercively imposed by the Kerry Lamb administration. It was a warring step in the erosion of democracy in Hong Kong. But you know, over in San Francisco, right, this half-century celebration of Stonewall, punctuated by this inaugural, inaugural QHC event, pretended that this development in the destruction of human rights was irrelevant. And mind you, just a month prior to that, in May 2019, um, Taiwan had undergone a constitutional revolution that legalized same-sex marriage. So um, the promising progress in Taiwan contrasted with the gloomy uncertainty hanging over Hong Kong's future. And this kind of, you know, my and so of course I was based in San Francisco at that point in time attending a conference. My sentiment um, is similar but not identical to the way that earlier in 1989 the Chinese, global Chinese diasporic communities responded to the Tiananmen Square massacre in Beijing. At the QHC, uh, I kept on uh, tuning out, Um, even though there were a lot of interesting papers and uh, discussions, I felt very disoriented. And I was looking for the right expression to tackle this, what I think Gayatri Spivak would call sanctioned ignorance in the West. Mm. So, my book um, proposes transtopia as a new theoretical paradigm to overcome the kind of Western centrism that I've been talking about and that I think continues to plague queer and trans history. At the same time, I borrow from the insight of Sinophone studies as pioneered by the scholar Shishume to complicate the role that Chineseness played in these kinds of history. So I'll say that, you know, on the one hand, uh, I think my book makes a very specific claim, right? And that is the geopolitics of Chineseness offers a useful lens to unpack the uneven history of LGBTQ experience around the world, especially when we start to account for those communities and cultures that we thought they tend to share a common quote unquote Chinese linguistic or cultural descent. Like I said, with the Hong Kong protest, right? Putting the word Chinese in quotation marks is absolutely crucial here to think about the uh, diversity of synthetic language communities worldwide. So that's a more specific claim that the book makes. On the other hand, I think the book also broadens out and seeks to advance a new type of historical thinking, especially um, as it helps us to think about alternative ways of being and knowing in the world. So this is where the neologism of transtopia comes in because uh, what it ultimately tries to do is to make room for different kinds of gender transgression that are not always discernible through this Western notion of transgender and i think ultimately going back to you know your earlier point about uh, uh, non-western production of transness and queerness i think more importantly right by my very um endeavor to formulate a theoretical vocabulary first and foremost from the settings of the Sinophon pacific my work decenters the west as a uh privileged site for uh, theoretical innovation and historiographical analysis. So that's also kind of doing um, some kind of disciplinary work on that level. Mm.
1: Yes. And I, I think for me, what really struck me as most powerful about this book was this, this kind of decentering or, or provincializing the idea that the, the West and the Western kind of vocabularies that we use in anglophone scholarship to talk about you know queer experience or trans experience in asia has limited in many ways some of the theoretical interventions that scholars working within this space can can have i have been in a similar situation where i've been at large interdisciplinary conferences where you know there's the that single panel on asia and you spend half your time having to explain either why Asia is significant or what's particular about the Asian experience to a room of people who, whilst their politics may be in the right place, they're they're not necessarily kind of thinking about these things. And I I take your point that there's sometimes a strategic or deliberate um, kind of downplaying of some of this when it comes to disciplinary debates, which speaks to the structures of knowledge systems that we as academics must you know, navigate, and and I think you know. Returning to something you were saying earlier, Howard, this your work has specifically been about thinking about the structuring of these knowledge systems, as much as dismantling them. Now, in your your discussion there, you've mentioned two terms that maybe listeners from the New Books Network may not be familiar with. The first is your neologism, transtopia. You've given us a brief introduction as to what that means. But I I think that it may be useful to kind of tease out a little bit further. What you you mean? Why is it transtopia? Why is this concept, you know, it evokes either dystopia or utopia. Why do you frame it this way? Uh, Why this particular term? How did you come to develop it? Where does it come from? And how do you see it moving forward in the future? Why do you believe that this particular concept will be useful in this this theoretical and political work that you're doing?
0: Yeah, that is a very, very good question. Um, and as you have pointed out, right, uh, transtopia sounds very similar to either utopia or dystopia. And, you know, scholars who uh, work on utopias or dystopias will often tell us that there are kind of two sides of the same coin. And, uh, you know, so um, I think... For me, at least, when I when I was working through the materials that I was working on, um, and definitely now, I you know with um, especially for example in the US in the post Roe world, um, I think we are actually further from the possibility of imagining you know transness or gender mutability mutability sorry um, as the norm as something that uh, should be factored into any of our considerations, whether it's theoretical or scholarly, historical, so on and so forth. So I think that, that, that was one of the um, reasons I would say that, that kind of drove me to, to this idea was that I was hoping to gesture toward the possibility of imagining a world, a, a universe, Right, in which transness is not considered as uh, deviant or marginalized, but sits at the very center of human existence. And in some ways, this is an update of uh, Eve Sedgwick's work. Right, So um, when Eve Sedgwick wrote The Epistemology of the Closet, um, she made a very uh, admin point about how homophobia or anti-homophobic inquiry must sit at the center of uh, critical thinking. I think we're at a point where we have to think about the conjuncture of transphobia and homophobia. And so that that was the reason why um, I came, one of the reasons why I came to this concept of transtopia is to gesture towards that kind of utopian um, and realistically dystopian uh, possibilities. Now, in the, um, to answer your question about how I came to um, develop this approach in the acknowledgement section of the book, I actually recount two episodes in which I became increasingly uh, unpersuaded by the way transness has been understood in both Western and Chinese academia. And I would recommend listeners to turn to that part of the book to get the full story. But building on uh, these experiences, uh, I came to transtopia as a way to really peel back the layers of cross-cultural politics in anti-transphobic inquiry. You know, on the one hand, I, I, I have a very specific you know, operational definition that I um, described earlier as you know, something that refers to uh, different degrees of gender transgression that are not always recognizable through the Western notion of transgender. But on the other hand, we can also think very abstractly about transtopia as anything that exceeds transphobia, right? So uh, we have this concept of transphobia that uh, that circulates in our discourse, but we don't really have a good um, kind of um, opposite term to describe what would be the uh, contrast be to transphobia. So that was also another um Uh, factor or a reason for coming up with transtopia. Um, So not only does it kind of raise the specter of, you know, what a non-Western perspective can bring to the study of transness, transtopia by its very existence um, questions the hegemonic pretense of transgender as a master sign in the history of gender and sexuality. So I would say that, you know, it allows us to historicize gender mutability um, that exceeds two things. One is the transphobic denial of the past, and two is the transgender presumption of depressant. So let me unpack that a little bit more. Um, like one of the examples that I talk about in chapter one of the book is the story of Global Christine. Um, so in the 1950s, the topic of sex reassignment uh, commanded widespread media attention, not only in the West, but also in Mexico Taiwan, and Japan. Um, this kind of followed the stardom of the very famous American uh, Christine, Christine Jorgensen. And following that, you know, each of the countries that I named claimed that they had their own Christine. Uh, the Mexican Christine was Marta Omos. The Japanese Christine was Nagai Akiko. And the Chinese Christine was Xie Jianshun. Um, each of them has a different story to tell. And my point is that you know, by establishing a transtopian continuum, their stories can be situated non-hierarchically as interrelated on that spectrum. So we can uh, refrain from treating one specific case, typically you know the Western Christine Jorgensen, um, gets singled out as the kind of norm from which different degrees of transness is determined. Um, But my point here, right, is that Xie should not be seen as less trans than Jorgensen. Uh, The Mexican Christine should not be considered as more trans than the Japanese Christine, so on and so forth. So on the individual level, um, I think this is a determined move to queer transness so that the diversity Mm -hmm. of transness can be readily acknowledged. Um, And so just to to wrap up here, I think, um, like I said you know, in addition to this individual uh, epistemology, transtopia also tries to perform some kind of rethinking on the disciplinary nev- level as well, right? It's a non-identitarian and non-destination-driven conception of trans. Um, some read, uh, some listeners may have heard of the work of uh, David Valentine, anthropologist David Valentine, who has argued in his book, uh, Imagining Transgender, that you know when the discipline came to be consolidated around the very category of transgender in the 1990s the rubric was typically assumed to capture something more advanced you know, more more modern than the traditional local non western understandings of gender embodiment and identity and you know in my research, I also discovered that even recent efforts to revise trans historiography often through the lens of class or race, for example continues to circle back to the confines of the West as a point of departure. Um, and even more problematically, if you look at book titles, right, um, it would be acceptable for authors dealing with specific cultures, such as that of the United States, to sue generic titles like female masculinity, female husbands, or transgender history. Authors, like us, dealing with non-Western cultures are often expected to mark our project with words such as Chinese in Japan or Indian, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, in this sense, uh, Transtopia provides a necessary corrective, right, to the you know, uh, assumed universalism uh, that tends to underpin Western trans studies.
1: Thank you for that very eloquent discussion and introduction to this, what I think is such an important topic. What really strikes me is this this um, you you mentioned the challenge to the West as a point of departure. And I I really think that what this book is doing and, and what you know the the discipline or interdisciplinary space, if you will, of, of queer Asian studies can be doing in this kind of really radical queer way is is challenging, you know, Historiographies that are teleological, you know, that that things started, and I think you know, mentioning Stonewall is quite apt here. You know, things started in um, the West, but there is some kind of originary story that exists immutably out there in Asia or Africa or what have you. You know, the so-called third sexes, um, and then that it moves towards some kind of end goal that follows along an identarian path laid out in that 1990s paradigm that you referred to. And I think that the intervention of transtopia and this, this kind of despatializing, in, in some ways that I, I, I felt while I was reading the book, because I, I often think through space myself, um, has been something that really struck me as quite powerful. And I, I kind of now want to turn to the other element of the book, which also speaks in somewhat spatialized terms, which is the the insistence of geopolitics that you you make in in developments or retweaking, if you will, trans theory. Because as this the title of this book makes very clear, this is transtopia in the Sinophone Pacific. This book has been um, responding to debates within area studies more broadly, but specifically within the emerging field of sinophone studies, which I know, Howard, you're a big mover and shaker in. Now, some listeners of the New Books Network may be unfamiliar with this this approach to scholarship. Um, So I wonder if you could firstly give us a bit of an introduction to what sinophone studies is, why it's significant, and then talk about how you apply it. In your book, and why transtopia as a theoretical lens emerges from this Sinophone Studies case study, but is applicable beyond the Sinophone case studies. Mm. Yes. So, um,
0: you know, uh, it's going to take a while to <laughs> expand on Sinophone Studies, but I'm going to try my best to simplify this. Um, in a nutshell, Sinophone Studies takes as its object of investigation uh, synthetic language communities and cultures worldwide. And uh, these are typically uh, situated on the margins or outside of China and Chinese-ness. Um, for example, today we what we call Chinese studies tends to establish a chain of equivalence between language, culture, politics, and the nation state. You know, as if what we mean by um, the Chinese language is comparable to what we call the Chinese nation-state. But in contrast, Sinophone studies questions, and in fact, I think I would say deconstructs right, this chain of equivalence by not presuming uh, Chineseness as a coherent given. Um, when we start to think about um, the Sinophone world as a historical framework, there are a number of historical patterns that we might point to um, that have shaped um, the contemporary sinophone world or Xenophon communities. Um, one is uh, continental colonialism. And the very obvious example is um, in the Qing dynasty, during the Qing dynasty, um, the Qing regime kind of doubled its size through its um, forces of continental colonialism into inner Asia. The way that it acquired Tibet, Xinjiang and Mongolia and, um, and placed it sit, you know, squarely within its territorial sovereignty uh, suggests that this is a mode of empire and colonialism that we tend to forget, right? When we talk about 19th century um, era of high imperialism, we tend to think about like British imperialism, British Empire. Overseas expansion, these European notions of empire was very important. But continental colonialism uh, was a very important vector in shaping the Sinophone world. Um, The second, and there are three I'm gonna talk about, the second is um, uh, settler colonialism, okay? And uh, we tend to think about um, the process of settler colonialism uh, in the context of Taiwan, right? The way that the Han Chinese regime uh, migrated uh, to Taiwan, and, you know, that's a very neutral term, but in fact, they colonized the island of Taiwan. Um, and you know, right? The, the Han Chinese rulers and leaders decided that they would um, stay rather than um, going away. Right? That's what happened to British South Asia. They came and they went away, but the Han Chinese did not go away. And so, one of the consequences of Han settler colonialism in Taiwan. Is precisely the formation of Sinophone communities there, and lastly, uh, of course, in global history, migration of Chinese-speaking communities have played a large role. Right, so um, the various Chinese-speaking communities that have scattered around the world um, have also been a very important historical pillar for the formation of Sinophone world. Um, and here is where uh, some Sinophone studies scholars. Uh, engage in debates with scholars of diaspora, right? So because the whole notion of the Chinese diaspora suggests that there is a homeland, right? Uh, With the overseas Chinese communities uh, that engages with, and I think Xenophone um, studies is really trying to push back against that tendency to think that all global Chinese diaspora communities uh, ultimately are making strong connections to the homeland. But signophone studies want to give these uh, communities um, their own kind of legitimacy and the right to claim a local localized identity. So those are historical um, patterns that um, we could point to um, as something that have shaped signophone communities worldwide. And in my book, the case studies that I look at in detail are mainly from outside the People's Republic of China proper. So I have found um, you know, these historical framings of sinophon culture to be more salient than the descriptor of Chinese, right? I think by this point, it's actually very, a hard sell um, to call Taiwanese people Chinese. Um, mm-hmm. Some will agree with that, some might not agree with that, but the point is that this uh, tension, right, between the Sanofun world and China proper is um, politically contested and historically embedded, just like the relationship between the Anglophone world and Britain, or the Francophone world and France. Um, If we can help Western scholars to appreciate the distinction between Chinese and Sinophone, I think that's a major step forward. Um, Thinking about why that distinction matters in queer and trans studies is the challenge that my book takes on.
1: So, I am going to follow up immediately um, with that point. Why? Why? What does, what does Sinophone Studies bring to the study of transness? Why, why so significantly must we think through this through the lens of, of Sinophone as a, as a kind of framing? I think this, this is, I think, very key to the argument that the book is making at an intellectual level. Because it is, to go back to some of those points you were making earlier, Howard, around dissatisfaction with area studies. Um, you know, the, this kind of traditional area studies approach where there's some kind of you look at the experiences of, of in country X as particular and then compare it to a universal ideal, and then in so doing, you create some kind of new theorization. But what your book is doing, what transtopia is doing, is very different to that. So I wonder now that we've provided listeners here at the New Book Network with uh, a brief introduction to transtopia as theory and sinophone studies as an approach. I don't want to, of course, give away the whole book because we want everyone out to go out and read it, right? But I wonder if you could just gesture towards a little bit what, what you you think these two kind of approaches or these two ideas can do at maybe a theoretical or intellectual level?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, um, so one of... So first of all, on a theoretical... So I'm going to try to answer a question from the perspective of theory and then uh, maybe bring up an empirical example to illustrate what I mean. Um, You know, at the theoretical level, I think both... Sinophon studies and transtopia um, try to make a case for why thinking about the relations between minor uh, to minor individuals or examples uh, is important, right? So if you think about um, the connection between Taiwan, Hong Kong and other xenophone communities, for example, um, you know, in and of itself, uh, both Taiwan and Hong Kong do not fall within the mainstream historical comprehension it, it's just not you know when we learn uh world history east asian history no one really pays attention to either taiwan or hong kong um, but when you start to put these two minor regions together right through this center lens that i've been talking about and you start to see why this kind of minor transnationalism takes center stage so this kind of minor to minor relation um, is, is this trans-regional articulation of significance uh, is something that uh, is made possible through the sainte studies approach without having to route these regions' significance or importance through these larger frames of reference, the frames of reference that you and I are more familiar with, such as China, Japan, or even the West. I hope that makes sense. Um, so uh, so s- similarly, you know, transtopia is also trying to do the same, right? We're looking at these examples of gender transgression that may very well be marginalized according to um, an implied notion of transness, implied hierarchy notion of transness, um, you know, within Western centric academia. But when we start to put these different case studies together, we start to see why um, their interrelation and their intersignificance can be expressed without having to privilege a specific kind of, a stratified kind of transness or queerness. So I think they're, in a theoretical level, they they are making those gestures in a parallel fashion. Now empirically though, I think one uh, example that I always like to bring up when I talk, talk about the book is the uh, example that I discuss in Chapter Five of the book, and this is, um, you know, the history of um, a high-profile social incident, the Ye Yongzhi incident that happened in Taiwan in 2000. And you know it, why it's important is because first, um, it led uh, the Taiwanese government to legislate a very important policy called the Gender Equity Education Act um, in 2004. Uh, and second of all, it helps us to rethink um, the history of this notion of tongzhi in the larger Sinophone world. So tongzhi for listeners who are not familiar with the term literally means you know, comrade um, or common will in Mandarin Chinese. Um, but because it sounds very similar to something like Tongxinlian, it was actually used as a, kind of reappropriated as a queer term to refer to homosexuality or eventually LGBTQ. Um, so so the Yong incident was important in that regard because, like I said, even though it's a locally situated incident, Ye uh, was actually um, bullied in school um, and he passed away in 2000 uh, very likely due to uh, bullying Um, so it was a tragedy uh, but because of the incident it pushed a lot of a lot of feminists and gay lesbian activists um, didn't work together before 2000 but they came together and especially for the feminists initially they wanted to legislate um, the equality of the Two Sexes Education Act, right? But then they reframed, uh, reconceptualized this act into gender equity education uh, because Ye was often bullied uh, for uh, displaying uh, feminine manners for being considered by his classmates as effeminate. Um, So they realized that this was a matter, gender was not just a matter of binary construct. But it must be conceptualized on as a spectrum and much much more fluid. And in an attempt to address the concerns of gender and sexual minorities like Ye Yongzhi, um, they decided to retitle the act into you know Gender Equity Education Act. And I'm making a point of this because you know in retrospect, and this is already mind you in the early point of 21st century, we don't really know if Ye Yongzhi ever identified as gay or trans or tongzhi, right, for that matter. Um, but the fact that these political activists were already thinking in these terms, I dare to say that, you know, they're already imagining a kind of transtopian universe even before we got to, um, you know, 2004 and 2005. So yeah, would also be kind of often brought up by the Taiwanese queer political movement as a very important milestone. Even though, like I said, right, uh, he never explicitly identified as gay, queer, trans, or tongshi. and his mom um, was very clear about that. Uh, she she didn't know, but um, the, the point is that because this was just a non-identitarian episode, it brings out so powerfully how we need, where we, we, we definitely need a new kind of analytic to understand this. And just because the fact that, you know, then Taiwan um, was at the forefront for legalizing same-sex marriage, now it has become kind of like a um, pseudo role model for different East Asian societies that we just so we cannot understand uh, yes case. Um, it, we, we cannot contextualize it with the um, uh, mere descriptor of, of Chinese uh, and the fact that Taiwan is not recognized as a nation state, just like Hong Kong, these are really peculiar, I would say, queer regions, um, and that's how I think this transtopia and Sinophone studies approaches actually overlap, intersect. They, you know, they, they 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 are brought out most clearly in these, you know, concrete empirical examples.
1: I, I really love the idea of thinking about um, the positioning of, of Taiwan and, and Hong Kong as, you know, I don't know, not nation states, quasi nation states, however you want to reframe it. I, I love the idea of how they, they queer the geopolitics of the system. It, it puts me in mind of the work of Neferti Tadia um, who has done some brilliant work on, on what she terms the libidinal economy of the Asia-Pacific something that i myself have been trying to think through through my own decentered study of queer popular culture across east and southeast asia i as i said what has really impressed me about this work of yours um how it is this challenge to I guess, a, a kind of tendency within some Western scholarship, even, even some of the most radical queer theory, to look for centres and to look for origins and to look for identity categories and so forth. Now, I, you've shared with us some of your empirical case studies, um, and I just want to flag to the listeners that this book is magisterial. It has so many rich case studies. It has such a huge archive of texts That you have gathered and analyzed and explored through these really complicated theoretical interventions, I'm always curious as a non-historian how historians go about developing these archives with which they work, because you know studying transtopia in the Sinophone Pacific isn't just about going to archive X and digging up the records written by group. you know so I I wonder if you could share with us a little bit you know from from the perspective of a historian um, some of the the methodological and and practical steps that led to the production of this book because I feel that the eclecticism of, of the archive and the approach that you took speaks very much as well to some of these theoretical concerns you've been discussing
0: yeah you know again this is my second book and so Um, this presented itself, I think, as a unique opportunity, right? Um, We are never really taught in grad school (laughs) on how to write a second book. So um, I felt, you know, in many ways, I was kind of on my own. And I actually did some research um, uh, to read up articles on, you know, second books (laughs) when I was writing this book, because, um, you know, the the, the kind of... uh, um, advice that we got in grad school was pretty much limited on actually writing a dissertation, not even really a book, right? It's really after the post-dissertation stage, then you start to think about how to turn that into a book. So I, I so in some ways I was drawing on that experience of writing the first book, knowing that what writing a book entailed, but also, and I should add one more context here is, you know, I um, had received tenure and I feel I was able to uh, be able to write something that I wanted to write without a lot of constraints. Um, I was not uh, very worried about you know this book, for example, going up as the centerpiece book for a tenure review in history. So you know this might be a book for a promotion to full, but that was not even like the most important thing to me. I just wanted to um, think about a way to write this book that could kind of fulfill the ambition that I had. So I really, you know, like you said, I started to suspend all these disciplinary constraints. Um, And if um, listeners have a chance to take a look at the book, the book is divided into two sections. In section one, uh, it has two chapters where I call two manifestos. And uh, in section two, it has three chapters. Um, dealing with different kind of case studies, right? So um, it, this, this structure came, um, in some ways, came to me only after I had an initial sense of how I might structure the book. Um, so the, the, I'll say that the, the, the second section, the latter half, uh, chapters three, four, and five, were written first, uh, and some of them were um, updated and revised versions of some essays that I had previously published. But it's actually, having written those, I sat down and I felt like, oh, I actually needed two um, initial chapters for framing the book, for tying things together. And that's why, you know, you have first chapter on transtopia to reorient transgender theory. And then the second chapter on uh, why queer theory needs scientific studies to challenge some of the premise of Chinese studies at the same time that we try to provincialize uh, Stonewall, for example. Um, so that was the framing that I needed. And in the second half of the book, I'll say that you know, the, the case studies kind of developed rather organically from my previous work. You know, For example, when I was working on After Unix, um, I often came across this term, this con- somewhat contemporary term called ren yao, which in English just means some human prodigy or human monster, and, and this has been a very potent trans term, you know, in Chinese history and in Sinophone world. But very interestingly, no one has really tried to historicize the term. So, you know, I was, I was just telling myself, you know, actually, it's time to actually sit down and to trace very carefully the genealogy of the term. Uh, and of course, I found out that geopolitics, xenophone geopolitics, was actually very central to the history of Renyao. So that's how the third chapter came about. In the fourth chapter, um, it, it's kind of funny because uh, my book, After Eunuchs, kind of rests on this um, assumption, right, that Chinese eunuchs, these are castrated men uh, serving um, the emperor and the royal family, uh, they had, um, the, the unix system was exterminated, uh, sorry, uh, terminated by the 1920s and 1930s. Um, but so so, so the book rests on that that premise that there was a demise of castration eunuchs that came with the end of the Qing empire. Um, but of course, what's interesting, right, is that today, um, there continues to be a looming interest in chinese unix in sinophone mm. uh, tv shows cinema and so on and so forth so you know i think it would be a missed opportunity for like a historian like myself who's interested in chinese unix but then to fail right to engage with contemporary interest this is such a opportune moment <laughs> for telling uh, contemporary viewers audience and readers why you know this history is fascinating um so that was the reason that led to let me to write chapter four. And then chapter five I had talked about um, about Yeonji incident because I want to rethink Tongji politics between Hong Kong and Taiwan. So they kind of all of these uh, third, second half of the book, the chapters in the second half of the book kind of unfolded. I would say kind of organically, and it was kind of um, uh, my job to bring it all together. You know, like you said, just to wrap up here, it's not, you know, there is not like a archive <laughs> devoted to studying transtopia <laughs> in the Sinophone Pacific. So um, a lot of times it was kind of my own digging and think, thinking creatively about how we
1: can piece these different pieces of puzzle together. You know, Howard, when you were talking about guides for writing your second book, I felt that deeply in my bones um, because I myself had the same experience. But also, like yourself, um, having received the Australian equivalent of tenure, really it was, oh, I can go and write about what I want to write about, and eventually that second book kind of came together. Um, Unfortunately, I won't be able to draw upon Transtopia in it, but the next project for sure. Um, So I guess... The, the kind of what I would like to end on um, is to return to some of these broader questions that you raised very early on in our conversation around queer Asian studies. Both you and I are fairly committed to this new emerging field, as you already flagged for our listeners. Both you and I have served on the boards of the so- Society for Queer Asian Studies, which is affiliate of the Association for Asian Studies. Um, and we're both fairly committed to this kind of um, critique of a Western-centred queer studies canon, perhaps. So I, I wonder, you know, moving forward, what, come, what comes after transtopia and, and what what kind of work needs to be done to further the work of queer Asian studies? I think I know what your answer will be, but I will uh, leave it with you. Yeah. Yeah, so I agree with you
0: strongly on the point of decolonizing queer and trans studies and why right? it's absolutely necessary to move away from the Western-centric uh, conceptual models of transness and queerness in the 21st century. Um, you know, I think um, every book has a purpose and I think in uh, proposing transtopia, my main goal in writing this book is to offer a method to change how we think about transness and queer history. Um, so to the extent that the book has that effect, I think I have accomplished my goal. Like I don't imagine um, you know, building a new field like what uh, Shume has done for Sinophone studies. Um, and you know, in that spirit, I think it would be good for transtopia in the Sinophone Pacific to stand on its own. Um, It's just that, you know, I think different books tries to um, do different things. You know, at the same time, kind of, I guess answering your question somewhat indirectly, Then, I I am currently writing um, a series of essays that extend my thinking on transtopia. Um, And and these concerns are, um, I would say, you know, in response to your question are precisely some of the themes that I think will be highlighted in the near future of queer Asian studies. Um, So for example, I'm now thinking about how the concept of transtopia uh, might address a number of blind spots in queer history and queer studies. Um, In Asia, um, I am interested in Hayden White's notion of narrativity and why that's important for queer Asian historicism. Um, And I also noted that um, there is a scarcity of scholarship on the social history of trans masculinity, So I'm also trying to rethink the archival knowledge, the politics of archives surrounding that. Um, and perhaps more importantly, um, the intersection of queer indigeneity and the question of racial capitalism, I think is something that's going to come to the fore. You know, once again, um, scholars of... Um, both I would say queer indigenous studies and racial capitalism have tended to you know, focus their attention on the transatlantic world. Um, but I think it's high time for us to think about the questions of race and how it intersects with capitalism. And of course, questions about indigeneity uh, in the Asia Pacific. There, there is um, a minority of literature on uh, indigenous communities in Japan, uh, in Taiwan, in the Philippines, and other parts of Southeast Asia, but they remain, um, you know, on the margins. So I would like to see, um, you know, th- the way that these uh, new questions are being asked and how they intersect with some of the uh, existing concerns that we have as scholars of queer Asia. Um, i also thinking about how transtopia might help us to um, shed light on some of the blind spots in Western trans history. Like you said, you know, there is a particular genealogy that tends to be uh, privileged, right? Um, As we reach to the paradigm of the 1990s, the the culmination of trans studies there. So um, I'm hoping that transtopia can help us think about um, some of the uh, uh, actors or examples that have kind of fallen from the purview in this kind of genealogy. Um, so all of this might culminate in a short break. I'm not sure. But those are some of the issues that I'm currently thinking through. And I think um, they are going to be increasingly important in queer Asian studies as well.
1: Mm-hmm. And I, I think as well, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, you know, thinking about these questions in a post row world, because, of course, you are situated right now in the United States where we're seeing some very quite scary things happening around the issues of transness um, and this, this idea that sits within kind of Western-centric conceptual models of, of you know, the United States as some kind of privileged centre and some kind of model to follow, you know, looking from without, it's often a hard pill to swallow and, and having to combat the idea that Asia is somehow backward um, and is catching up. Uh, You know, when when we're thinking about some of the earlier moves in uh, queer and Asian studies, this was the the kind of challenge. And I think that we're kind of coming back to that. And transtopia is, I think, it's really lobbing a grenade once again into the fore and saying, look, there are alternative models and we need a vocabulary and a discourse to, to kind of do that. And so I, I think I take your point like as, as a, a methodological intervention as well, how to do this work. I find this book of yours, Howard, just really brilliant, like to be quite honest. Um, I'm in awe of, of what you've done here. So we're going to wrap it up. I know that you've probably given your, your one key takeaway, but if you're going to succinctly put it in, let's say one simple sentence to the listeners, of the new books network, what is the one lesson that you want readers of transtopia in the Sinophone Pacific to take away? Mm, I think this will be kind of like summary of what we've been talking about as well.
0: Um, I would say that something like this, thinking transversally across fields and building minor to minor forms of alliance are vital to the future of critical inquiry about diversity and human diversity. Thank you, Howard.
1: So that's been the New Books Network. I've been Tom TombowedNet. Thank you so much, Howard, for talking to me about your book. So Transtopia in the Sinophone Pacific is available from Columbia University Press. Um, Thank you very much. And I'll see you all next time here at the New Books Network.